This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest mining trade show. See thousands of new products and services at the Las Vegas Convention Center from September 28th to 30th. Registration is now open, so visit MineExpo.com to register. You don't want to miss this opportunity. Welcome to episode number 181 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm your online editor and host. I also help out with social media. I'm also helping out with the newspaper. Check out next week's issue. We are putting it together now, and uh, it's a very fun, surprisingly labor-intensive process to put together a newspaper. So if you like our website, check out our paper, because those people are putting a lot of work into putting that thing together. And I, th- I think it's going to be an exciting addition. And what I'm going to do with this podcast is I'm going to try and make it complimentary. I don't want to just go over the same content. Let's sort of take a look at some of the stories that maybe we missed. And so, I mean, there's so much content. Uh, and Trish, our acting editor-in-chief, is doing an amazing job of just Keeping our website, I feel like we have more content than ever these days. So she's doing a great job running our news organization here. And yeah, so coming up, we're going to take a look at how the mining industry is dealing with the coronavirus in terms of what it means to keep a mine open during the crisis. In some countries, mining has been deemed a essential service, which is an interesting thing in itself. You wonder if the revenues that come from these mines are maybe the real story behind it. Who knows? Now, last week, I was sort of giving any mine that's still open a bit of a hard time thinking, what about your workers? What are you putting first here, business or health? But what we see in, we have this TD fireside chat with Kinross Gold's management that we're going to listen to. And you actually do see a fairly, what I would call, responsible approach to keeping a mine open. So, you know, we let's not be dogmatic here. Let's keep open minds as always. And let's listen to Kinross and what Kinross is doing. I found it fairly persuasive. I mean, I guess they felt the need to get out and explain themselves as far as keeping the mines open, I'm assuming, or I mean, there's all sorts of questions in this, and they have like all their, a lot of their big top management people. Paul Rollinson, president and CEO, is on the fireside chat. They have their chief financial officer, Andrea Freborough, Paul Tomery, the chief technology officer, and Jeffrey Gold, corporate development, external relations, and chief legal officer, and Tom Elliott, investor relations and corporate development. So they really were out to send a message on how they're dealing with this. And yeah, so their minds are still running. So you can listen to that. And that is coming up. And gosh, you know, the Queen isn't exactly mining news, but I hope you saw the Queen's speech. I thought it was an excellent speech. I mean, the Queen has outlived all the major world leaders. I mean, she sort of like Pope John Paul 
was the last guy who sort of had the queen's stature. I sort of have this equation, this axiom that I've developed, which is the longer a politician or celebrity even is in the news, in a sense, the more exposure that person gets, the greater their political capital is. And I think you see that with someone like the Queen, who now is seen as almost a larger-than-life figure, and she kind of always has during my, my life. But you see how that political capital and just the persuasion and the power of her image grows with time. And I think we see that with our local politicians, whatever country you're in. That's why, you know, the longer people are around, the more power they get. I mean, with maybe an exception to the British labor guy who just keeps losing. And <laughs> but let's, let's put him aside. So uh, lots coming up. We have some great news stories, again, which didn't make the paper. And there's some good ones there, too. And so that's how jam-packed full of goodness our newspaper is. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And you can find us wherever podcasts are available. So let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have this story by Valentina Ruiz Leotode, who writes for mining.com. And there has been a worker who has died of the coronavirus at First Quantum's Cobre Panama mine. And so Panama's Ministry of Health confirmed that one person has died at the Cobre Panama operation due to complications caused by COVID-19. On Sunday, the government agency posted a tweet saying that following the identification of the first case of COVID-19 at the site on March 24th, and despite efforts to stabilize the patient and isolate others suspected of carrying the infection, a worker died over the weekend. And the ministry tweeted out, We regret the loss of this worker, and together with the Social Insurance Registry, we will proceed to expand our testing procedures to follow up with the other workers. Cobra Panama is 90% owned by First Quantum Minerals through its subsidiary Minera Panama. The massive mining complex is located 120 kilometers west of Panama City and 20 kilometers from the Atlantic coast. Now, Let's just back up a little bit here. The, despite efforts to stabilize the patient and isolate others suspected of carrying the infection. So one person has passed away over the weekend, but it sounds like they have other cases that they suspect. So now let's go back. The initial COVID-19 cases identified at the site were members of the contractor workforce who are currently being cared for by the public health care system. So it sounds like they have a bit of an outbreak there. According to First Quantum, by the time the infections were detected, Cobra Panama had already implemented control, isolation, and quarantine measures in line with the guidelines issued by the Panamanian government. Although most economic activities have been halted in the Central American country, the mining operation was allowed to continue under Executive Degree 500. The condition to do so is that there is strict adherence to the protocols established by the Ministry of Health, that the labor force is reduced to the minimum necessary, and shifts last only for 12 hours. In late March, Panama enacted nationwide movement restrictions and the closure of non-essential businesses. And so it looks like Panama is one of those... There are a few Latin American countries that are uh, considering mining an essential service 
I suspect it's mining revenues. That is the real essential service here. So that's going on there. I mean, and think of the dilemma for the the leaders of First Quantum Minerals. Let's say you wanted to close down, but really you're at the head of a public company. The government you're working on is saying, no, you can keep working. What about that dilemma? So there's probably a lot going on underneath the surface of this article that we don't know about. It sounds like they're trying to follow protocol, but you know, just like as this disease came to our shores, to our borders of whatever country you're in, there's an inevitability to this. There's an inevitability to, if you're going to keep your minds open, there are going to be people that get sick and there will be outbreaks. So as people say, at a certain point, business has to reopen. But who decides? You know, is it going to be a mining company executive? Is it going to be the Ministry of Health for Panama? If there's anything that this crisis has shown, it's frankly, it's the, dare I say, just the sheer incompetence of many of our political leaders and a lack of respect for nature and for the power of nature. Anyways, before we wax too philosophical here, that is our first story. There is also another casualty and so tough week in the mining world. I think it's a tough week everywhere. Freeport, McMorrin, is ramping up security after an attack has killed an employee near the Grassberg mine. Now, you might remember from our what I found super interesting conference call that we listened to a few episodes ago on Freeport McMorrin. Grassberg, Freeport calls it the biggest gold mine in the world, and I think other people refer to it as well. I mean, I always think of Freeport as a copper company, but if they have the biggest gold mine in the world, they uh, are also a gold company. And it's quite a little story here because you're not seeing it break through into kind of mainstream news. So Trish Saywell put this together, and let's just go into the article and we can sort of discuss it as we go along here. Freeport McMoran confirmed that one employee was killed Another employee and contractor were seriously injured in a shooting in Papua, Indonesia, near the company's administrative offices in Kuala Kankana, a lowland company town 60 kilometers from its Grassberg mine in the Highlands. So this didn't happen at the mine, but it is 60 kilometers from the mine, and it was an employee. So let's get more information here. Now, the northern miner... uh, repeatedly contact Freeport McMoran for information. And finally, we got a statement from Linda Hayes, who's Freeport McMoran's Vice President of Communications. She told the Northern Miner, quote, security has been increased in the area and government security forces are actively working to apprehend the assailants. We are deeply saddened by this incident and our large workforce is grieving the loss of the longtime employee who was killed. End quote. Hayes did not release any other information and did not confirm the identity of the employee who was killed in the March 30th shooting, but news outlets, including Reuters and the Associated Press, identified him as a New Zealand citizen. The AP reported that West Papua Liberation Army, which is the military wing of the Free Papua Organization, claimed responsibility for the attack and quoted a statement from its spokesman, Sebi Sambom, quote, We will keep fighting until Freeport stops operating and talks for the independence of Papua begin. So these guys have their sights set on Freeport. And the New York Times is quoted in this article as well as having said that, quote, attacks by rebels near the Grassberg mine have spiked in the last year, noting that the mine, quote, is seen by separatists as a symbol of Indonesian rule and has been a frequent target for rebels. So it sounds like the mine is getting caught in the middle of this independence fight. 
I mean, it's part of a really worrying trend, I think, that we see in West Africa, where mines are becoming more the targets of these sort of political rebel groups. A worrying development at Grassberg, I would say, because you don't want to be in the middle of their independence fight. You don't want to be the chess piece, the, the prize. Maybe this just comes with the territory of having the world's biggest gold mine. Uh, let's just see if we have anything else here. Yeah, here we go. The Phoenix, Arizona headquartered company says the Grassberg Minerals District, quote, contains one of the world's largest recoverable copper reserve and the largest gold reserve and features three operating mines, the Grassberg Open Pit, the Deep War Zone Underground Mine, and the Big Gawson Underground Mine. So that's the latest on Freeport and Grassberg. So a bit of a security situation which is not what you want at your mine. Continuing on our tour around the world, Brazil is shutting 47 mine dams. It's deemed unsafe. They're shutting 47 mine dams. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, who is also from Mining.com, sister publication. Brazil has ordered the immediate closure of 47 mining dams that failed to certify their stability with more than half of them belonging to Valet, whose Corrego do Feiao iron ore mines tailings suffered a catastrophic failure in January last year, killing at least 270 people. Yeah, so the fallout of that story just keeps continuing. I think they charged, if I remember correctly, I believe we had it on our front page, the, the prosecutors want to charge the CEO with murder. If I am not mistaken, double check that, but I'm pretty sure that's the situation. The deadly incident, the second dam collapse in a, in a valet mine in less than four years, led to serious production stoppages. Pledges by the company to reconstruct or decommission many of its other waste storage facilities and the firing of a number of executives. Regulations released in August required valet, which lost its spot as the world's top iron producer to Rio Tinto earlier this year, to, quote, decharacterize or modify some small internal dikes at nine dams, similar to the one burst in January 2019. The new directives also forced the decharacterization of some drained stack structures owned by Valet. So by October, 54 Brazilian dams had either not certified their stability or failed to file the required paperwork altogether. Many of those structures are the ones closed down today, but the list also includes others operated by Valet or its affiliates. That brings the company's number up to at least 25 inactive dams. Earlier this week, the iron ore giant said in a file to the Brazilian Securities Exchange Commission, so troubles continue for Valet in Brazil. Yeah, when that many people die, you can't expect business to go back to normal anytime soon. There will probably be a lot of scores to be settled, one would think, there. So big news out of Brazil, shutting down 47 mining dams deemed unsafe. So next we have, uh, I really enjoyed this story. Uh, John Thornton, Barrick's executive chairman, has sold 50% of his shares in the company. And to me, this is almost like a classic sort of uh, news story, a tabloid kind of story in the sense that my take on John Thornton selling half his shares in Barrick, it's a head-turning headline. He sold why? He must not like the company. My take is he's probably just rebalancing his portfolio. He probably sees the market at 22,000 on the Dow. Barracks held up pretty well. Hey, 
let's rebalance the portfolio. So I'm going to sell half my shares. But the, but the headline that comes out of this is John Thornton sells half his shares in Barrick. There must be something wrong. So kind of a classic. This is a, To me, this is as much a media story as anything, because really, in some respects, it's who cares what John Thornton is doing with his personal portfolio, which is what this is about. And at the same time, it is newsworthy because that's just my interpretation. And Barrick had to announce that. And it is worth noting, if, if I was to be a investor in Barrick, I would want to know if John Thornton selling half his shares, and then I'd make what I would make of it. And for me, it's Okay, John Thornton is rebalancing his portfolio, it seems to me, but maybe you have different interpretations. So let's dig into this short story, a classic sort of media short story. I think we have a new genre here. John Thornton, Barrick Gold's executive chairman, has sold half his stake in the company, quote, due to personal portfolio considerations. Thornton sold 2.63 million shares. So Barrick is at about $20 US. So he sold 2.63 million shares. That's around $52 million of shares U.S., so not nothing. Uh, so, okay, so back to the Thornton sold 2.63 million shares following the publication of the company's 2019 annual results. The gold major noted that he sold the shares that he had bought using his personal funds and the shares were not subject to holding restrictions. The company said Thornton would continue to retain and seek to build on what remains a meaningful equity stake in Barrick and now holds 2.64 million shares. So he sold half. He sold 2.63 million and has 2.64. Thornton, a U.S. citizen, has been a director of Barrick since February 2012. He served as co-chairman between June 2012 and April 2014 when he was appointed executive chairman. Over the last year, Barrick's shares in Toronto have traded between $15.73 and $29.94. And so this is a Canadian price and closed at $26.68 on April 1st. I think now it's closer to $29.30 Canadian. And at press time, yeah, here we go. And at press time, the company's shares are trading at $28.09 for a $50 billion market capitalization. I consider this a bit of a delicious story. It's definitely newsworthy, but it's uh, it sounds like it means more than probably it is, but who knows? Speaking of metals, Raymond James lowers metals forecast for 2020. Raymond James has updated its metal price forecast for the year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Its new full year forecast for gold in 2020 is $1,594 per ounce, down from its previous forecast of $1,638 per ounce, while its silver price forecast stands at $16.19 per ounce, down from $19.20 per ounce. So it's kind of interesting because we're going to see in metal prices that actually gold is trading above its full year forecast. So anyway, so they predict 1594 and were predicting 1638. So they've basically lowered it a little bit. Silver, they've lowered dramatically, almost th basically $3 from 1920 to 1619. The brokerage is maintaining its 2021-2022 gold price forecast at $1,600 per ounce and forecast silver will reach $16.50 per ounce in 2021, down from its previous forecast $19 and $17.50 in 2022 down from $19 per ounce. So very conservative numbers from Raymond James. Um, you could argue they were already quite conservative, but it depends who you ask. Let's continue. In the base metal sector, copper is forecast to average $2.31 per pound for the year, 
down from an earlier estimate of $2.69 per pound, while zinc is down to $0.88 cents per pound from $0.99. Cents. Lead is now $0.77 cents per pound, down from $0.89 cents per pound, and nickel has fallen to $5.39 per pound, down from $5.81 per pound. So this is all very fun to learn about as we're right about to go into the metal prices. For 2021, Raymond James forecasts a copper price of $2.60, zinc at $0.95, cents, and nickel at $6 per pound, and lead at $0.87 cents per pound. So not much change there. Now, uranium, you might have noticed uranium stocks have really outperformed. There was what you'd call relative strength when the market was really going down. I think Friday, you saw some of these uranium miners were going up like 10 15%. Very interesting development there. You, uh, I was wondering to myself, is this the moment that the uranium bulls have been waiting for for almost since Fukushima? Uranium, according to Raymond James, is now forecast to average $27 per pound in 2020, down from an earlier estimate of $30 per pound, in, and in 2021, $39 per pound. So more very conservative numbers. I think like uranium, once Cameco, and this story's in our paper, once Cameco took Cigar Lake off, line. What was interesting about it is their stock price went up because it's a big mine and it's a big high-grade mine. And as we heard in our earlier episode with Cameco buying off the spot market to fulfill their contracts, they're just doing everything they can to reduce supply. And now they've taken off the Cigar Lake mine in Saskatchewan additionally. So they're kind of hitting on from all fronts, uh, but for justifiable reasons for coronavirus. So very interesting developments in the uranium market. And we have a big uranium special in this week's paper. It's actually a energy metals, lithium and uraniums. That story is in the paper. So that's coming. That'll be released uh, this weekend or I guess Monday, next Monday. Uh, in terms of preferred commodities, Raymond James said it prefers precious metals over base and bulk metals because the macro setup with lower interest rates should benefit the precious metals first. And we also expect less of a demand impact for the precious metals, particularly gold. And it also has some of their favorite gold producers. Uh, they like Agnico Eagle Mines. They like Franco Nevada, Barrick Gold, Kinross Gold. We're going to hear from Newmont and Wheaton Precious Metals. So those are their favorites there. And for uranium prices, given uranium prices while low have been increasing and there have been some curtailments in an industry with concentrated supply, it specifically likes Uranium Participation Corporation, which basically follows the uranium price, and Cameco. So those are your metal forecasts. Let's turn to metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we would like to first of all thank our friends at Infomine.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if you ever want to find them for yourself, just put in Infomine and metal prices into Google and it will be your first result. And on April 7th, gold is trading at $1,650.24 per ounce. That is $50 higher than last week's quote, silver is trading at $15.18. That is $1.37 higher than last week's quote. 
Platinum is trading at $743.16 per ounce. That is $22 higher than last week's quote. Palladium is down at $2,165.29. That is $165 lower than last week's quote. And on April 3rd, our industrial metals have copper at $2.21 per pound. That is $0.04 higher than last week's quote. Aluminum is at $0.66 per pound. So probably the lowest quote we've had on aluminum it is since we've been tracking this since last July. And I mean, we had aluminum up at $0.81, Now it's at 66 That's a big industrial metal. Lead is at $0.75 per pound. And again, that was trading as high as a dollar in October. So that is two cents lower than last week. Nickel is trading a penny lower at $5.08 per pound. Tin is trading five cents higher at $6.56 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.38. And zinc, finally, is also unchanged at $0.84. So not as big a moves as we've been seeing recently. I'd say the big takeaway here is the precious metals seem to have gotten a little bit of wind in their sails. Otherwise, everything else is just sort of bobbling along on the surface of the water. And with that, those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have a fireside chat with Kinross Gold Corp put on by TD Securities Management. And it is moderated by Greg Barnes of Equity Research. And it features... Kinross Gould's top brass, Paul Rollinson, president and CEO, Andrea Freebro, chief financial officer, Paul Tomery, chief technology officer, Jeffrey Gould, corporate development, external relations and chief legal officer, and Tom Elliott, investor relations and corporate development. And they discuss what it's like to keep your business running in the age of the coronavirus. So a very interesting discussion. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side. Good morning, everyone. My name is Greg Barnes, Head of Mining Equity Research at TD. I'll be hosting our fireside discussion this morning with Kinross's senior leadership team to discuss the company's global response to the COVID-19 crisis. On hand with us today, we have the entire senior leadership team from Kinross, including Paul Rollinson, President and CEO, Andrea Freeborough, Chief Financial Officer, Paul Tamori, Chief Technical Officer, Jeff Gold, Corporate Development and Chief Legal Officer, and Tom Elliott, Investor Relations and Corporate Development. Paul will make a few opening comments, and then we'll move into the discussion, which I will lead, and Paul will redirect the questions to each of the management team members that can best ask the questions. Over to you, Paul. Great. Thanks, Greg, and uh, thanks again to TD for uh, hosting this call today. First off, I I, I just want to acknowledge how difficult and unfortunate this uh, global pandemic is for many individuals and communities around the world. And We at Kinross would like to recognize and thank all of the frontline individuals that are working tirelessly and sometimes at significant personal risk in this uh, global fight. I think this crisis reminds us all of the importance of working together to achieve a common goal. And in the industry in particular, it's shown how productive relationships between companies and host governments can come together to, to work to protect the health and safety of our employees and community. Well, before COVID was uh, deemed a global pandemic, 
we put contingency plans in place to mitigate the impact that the potential spread could have had on our people and our business. Our process was led by a cross-functional task force that we established in late January who worked with our medical and travel advisors to develop protocols and practices intended to protect the health and safety of our employees. And to ensure these protocols remain effective in a rapidly evolving crisis, they are regularly reviewed reviewed and revised as necessary. We've also set up a global communications network within the company to share information on uh, best practices. Up until this point, these protocols and practices have proved to be effective. However, past results are no guarantee that even with constant vigilance, we'll remain successful when dealing with this. I would like to reiterate that the health and safety of our employees and the communities in which we operate is embedded deeply in our culture and it really is our top priority. Today, we want to provide you with an overview of, of what Kinross did to prepare for the pandemic and what we are continuing to do. Specifically, we'd like to update you on the status of our operations, provide an update on our financial position, and address some questions, uh, investor questions that have been compiled by you, Greg. You may have also seen that we issued a press release this morning that, uh, that, that also addresses these issues. Beginning with our operations, we are pleased to note that currently all Kinloss mines continue to operate and have not been materially impacted to date. However, in the current environment, our operations may be impacted by a number of factors, including, first and foremost, the safety of our people, and secondly, the evolving regulatory environments of our host governments and the mitigating actions that they take. With respect to the regulatory environments at our locations, I'd make the following observations. Much of our production does come from remote locations. All of our operations in the U.S. are located in jurisdictions where mining has been declared an essential service. In addition, the gold we produce in the U.S. is also refined there. Coupol, uh, because of its ro remote location, relies on winter ice roads, and we're at that part of the season where it's now fully provisioned uh, for a full year ahead. Uh, Brazil very recently has also declared uh, mining an essential service. And in Mauritania, also a remote location, we're working very closely with the government there who have indicated a, a, a very strong desire to keep Tassius running safely. Also, uh, we have developed business continuity plans in order to protect and mitigate supply chain risks. For example, we are in the process of increasing stock levels by an additional three months above normal for most critical items. Although to date our operations have not been materially impacted, we have decided to withdraw our guidance for 2020. We believe this is prudent given the high level of uncertainty that is likely to persist for the next few months. Despite this, our teams will continue to use their best efforts to meet their operational plans. Favorable fuel prices and foreign exchange rates are expected to somewhat offset the incremental pandemic-related costs during this period. With regards to metal sales, we have explored and implemented various contingency plans, including alternative cargo flights. However, preliminary sales in the first quarter are expected to be below production as certain operations ship Dore earlier than normal in order to reduce the risk of potential flight restrictions. Kinross's preliminary Q1 2020 production, which has been partially impacted by crisis-related 
contingency measures, is expected to be approximately 560,000 ounces, with sales of approximately 540,000 ounces. Kinross maintains a strong financial position with a robust balance sheet. As of the end of Q1 2020, the company had over $1 billion in cash. This includes our recent drawdown of $750 million from our line of credit as a conservative measure to protect against any potential disruptions to cash flow caused by the pandemic. At present, because of the strength of our financial position, we do not plan to deploy these funds. In addition, we maintain $730 million of undrawn credit on our revolver at this time. The company has, consistent with prior disclosures, also recently submitted a drawdown notice for $200 million under the TASIUS project financing with first funds expected around mid-April. Our current net debt is approximately $1.5 billion. Our credit metrics remain strong, and our debt is investment grade. Before taking some questions, I would like to express my sincere appreciation to all the Kinross employees who have risen to these challenges to keep our operations, workspaces, and communities healthy and safe. Their efforts under these difficult circumstances have kept the mines operating and mitigated the risk to our business, all while with complying with directives from host governments and local medical authorities. Lastly, updates on Kinross's COVID response will continue to be published when appropriate on our website. With that, Greg, perhaps I can uh, turn it over to you to, to lead us on the questions. Thanks, Paul. I'll run through a number of questions here. So, Coupol uh, was one of the first mining operations globally, I think, to actually deal with the suspected COVID-19 case. So, what did you do? What was the protocol and how did the health authorities react when that situation occurred? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Look, um, as I said in my opening remarks, the good news, I think, here is that we were well ahead of it in terms of establishing our, our protocols. They were in place. And what happened was we ended up having uh, two suspected cases that were later confirmed to be negative. And, and again, most importantly there, those individuals are doing fine. But because of those protocols, we were ready and, and an action plan kicked in. A number of measures were taken to reduce potential for further spread of infection. So there's a whole laundry list I could go through, but it was things like you know, hourly disinfection of handrails, door handles, and contact surfaces with, with chlorine solutions. We had a deep in disinfection of the first aid station was conducted twice a day in addition to the regular cleaning. We, we came up with a room that was designated to isolate employees who had any kind of flu-like symptoms. We had PPE kits, including coveralls, face masks, safety glasses, gloves, uh, they were made available for any employees contacting anyone exhibiting flu-like symptoms. We canceled all social events for 14 days. We tried to get employees into smaller groups for required gatherings, such as meals. Cafeteria hours were extended. We closed the gym. And so there's a, there's a long list, laundry list, but I think the key here is we were ready, uh, we were set up, and we executed uh, accordingly. In terms of the site, you know, our operations at site uh, continued as normal. However, until the site did receive confirmation of those negative results, passenger flights to Kupol were suspended, as well as traffic between Kupol and Devoinoy. Cargo flights were permitted to continue, and obviously, since those tests have come back negative, passenger flights have now resumed. But what we're now doing is that, given that, uh, again, Kupol, very remote site, it's really important we keep it 
safe, any employees arriving from outside the region, what we wouldn't want is for them to get to site and then learn later that they might have been on a flight uh, with a COVID case. So what we're now doing is a controlled access to site, which, which starts with a 14-day self-isolation before you can get into site, and checks are conducted by medical personnel before getting uh, getting on the bus to the airport. And, uh, and the last part of your question, I think, was the, the authorities. Frankly speaking, we found the authorities in Chicoke to be very professional and cooperative, very supportive. They, they had prepared their protocols. They had equipment. They came to site. We were in constant communication, and they worked very diligently to make sure that follow-up tests were taken in an ex- expedited manner. So the good news is they were negative, and I think in our instance, this was uh, almost a, a really good dry run for preparation and, and a good learning, again, for, for other sites around the world. And Paul, if, if an employee at site comes down with COVID-19, uh, do you medevac them immediately? Do they isolate on site? What do you do? There seem to be some different reactions globally to this. Yeah, and again, we've got these preparedness protocols that that we did set up. Um, again, the protocols at the sites really we're trying to get in front of this to, to hopefully not have this happen. But the point here is it's about knowing who's coming to site, whether they're visitors, suppliers, contractors, or ever or whatever, making sure they don't get access to the site first and foremost. If an employee actually contracts COVID, there's really two main concerns. And the first is obviously getting the employee the necessary medical care. And in that regard, it's going to depend on the specific circumstances. For example, is it a camp or not? And and what are the symptoms? And our first step would be to isolate the individual and work with the, from there, just work with the appropriate health authorities to ensure they have access to medical care. So number one, it's the individual it's isolation and their health is the focus. The second, obviously, would be would be obviously to prevent secondary transmission on site. So we again, protocols would have us take immediate steps to identify anyone at site who might have been in close contact with that particular individual and, and isolate them as well. And again, we work with the health authorities. And of course, as I said a moment ago, this is the after the fact. The best way we're going to avoid having to get in these situations is really the first defense is to be, again, very careful about screening protocols and making sure who gets access to the site. So I know there's been a lot of talk in the industry about supply lines, and most companies that I've talked to seem to be doing okay on that front. And I know you've increased inventories at site, but what else are you doing to ensure that you have safe supply lines and the materials you need are going to get to site when you need them? Sure. It's a great question. Uh, and, and supply chain uh, risk mitigation has been a key area of focus for us. I'm going to uh, ask Paul Tamori to just kind of walk you through some of the activities that uh, we've been undertaking. Paul? Yeah. So we we start our program with monitoring. We keep in touch with our key suppliers, assessing things like, are their factories running? And there are situations where certain suppliers have shut factories due to COVID. We look at their stock levels, what inventories do they have on hand to send out to our mines. We also keep in close contact with freight forwarders, port authorities, keeping our finger on the pulse of global shipping. That's the, the general monitoring of the situation. And for the most part, the global supply chain still seems to be working. On a site level, we, we've assessed, as Paul alluded to earlier, our key consumables, but also our critical spares, what 
what mechanical components might we need at site in the event of of an unplanned downtime. So we've assessed the potential for disruptions and the mitigating actions that we've taken, and these are concrete actions that have already been executed. Paul alluded to it is implementing an order campaign to bring our consumables where possible up to three months or more on hand at the site. In some instances, that won't be possible where the physical infrastructure isn't in place, for example, to store diesel. So we are operating above normal inventory levels. Coupal, Paul mentioned, is, a, is in a very good position where we're, we're just completing the winter road campaign, which will provide 12 to 14 months of inventory of consumables. Uh, Tazius will very soon have three months of supply of critical items and consumables, again, with the exception of those items that require significant infrastructure to store. And um, all, all of operations have been given a mandate to increase consumables levels uh, where possible. You touched on liquidity this morning in the press release, and you've obviously drawn on the line, but are there other actions you're taking to safeguard your liquidity? Are you reviewing CapEx? I know you have a fairly healthy growth CapEx plan for this year. What are you thinking on that front? Well, I think, I mean, bottom line is we do have a strong balance sheet. It is investment grade. And uh, at this point, you did note that we, we drew on our line, but Andrea can speak a little bit more to that. But bottom line is, as we sit today, we are comfortable with our liquidity position. Andrea, do you want to maybe chime in a little bit here on uh, balance sheet and liquidity? So as of March 31st, we have over a billion dollars in cash and cash equivalents uh, on the balance sheet, which does include the $750 million that we drew on the credit facility, which was really a precautionary measure. Uh, and it also reflects our cash flow from operations in Q1, which is offset by four sort of bigger payments during the quarter that I think are, are just worth highlighting and, and reminding people of. So those include the first installment for the acquisition of Chilbatkin, which was $141.5 million. It includes the semi-annual interest payment on our senior note, which is $48 million. It also includes a $40 million tax payment that we made in Brazil, and that was really a result of uh, Pericatu's exceptional performance in 2019 and the higher gold prices that we are seeing in the second half of the year. Uh, and lastly, we had repaid the $100 million that we had outstanding on the revolving credit facility at year-end um, earlier in the year. I'd also note, you know, we do still have additional credit available if we thought, you know, it was, it was prudent to make further drawdowns on that credit facility. Um, and then I guess turning to the CapEx uh, part of, of your question, Greg, we do think it's prudent to consider our discretionary capital, and we've completed business continuity plans and resilience plans for each of our mines. So, you know, the smaller nice-to-haves and projects that we haven't started yet are probably at greater risk of being postponed than our more important projects where we've already started executing. But I would note that at this time, we haven't delayed any of our projects, and but we might see a bit of a slowdown in spending just as a result of the global crisis. So uh, I think the key aspect of the growth plans would be the 24K expansion of Tassius. Are there any challenges on that front uh, with related to COVID-19? Yeah, thanks, Greg. The As yet, the project remains unimpacted. So as Andrea mentioned, we are proceeding with the project. We're into the civil works now in the power plant as well as some of the uh, process plant elements. But one of the ways we've been characterizing internally is you take a lot of paper cuts. There's a lot of little impacts. You hear about supplier X declaring force majeure or the inability to get expat technical experts into the country due to travel restrictions. These are a lot of these paper cuts, these incremental impacts that add up. And so 
we would expect that as the months and weeks go by, if some of these restrictions aren't lifted, we might start to see these little impacts start to accumulate. But as of now, the project is ongoing and we haven't yet seen significant delays creep into the schedule. But of course, given the fluid and ever-evolving nature of this, this crisis, it is difficult to say what might happen three, four, five, six, eight months down the road. I think the benefit, if there is one of this, is the gold prices have reacted, or beginning to react quite well to the massive government stimulus and central bank expansion and what have you. We've raised our gold price this morning, and on our numbers, uh, 1650 gold, this year and 1750 next, Kinross could generate upwards of a billion and a half in free cash flow. How are you thinking about capital allocation on that front, Paul? We agree. In fact, we, we may actually do a little bit better than that number over the next two years at 1750. Look, I think the world has rotated a little bit. Our capital allocation strategy has, has been you know, designed to weather various environments, but not sure anyone's ready for this. And although we're in great shape financially, I think in the near term, we're going to be pretty cautious about committing to any major cash outlays. It's somewhat incongruent with, uh, you know, the uncertainty when we feel the need to potentially draw on our revolvers. So business will go on, but we just have to be braced for scenarios where it may get interrupted. You know, obviously, we start with discretionary spending. Those are the first places you start to look if, if we're needing to find capital. And, and of course, we'll, we'll do our level best to maintain or sustain our business on, on that front. And, look, return of capital, we understand in a normal world with these spot commodity prices, you know, margins are, are, are very strong right now, which does get people focused on the return of capital. But right now, today, given everything that's going on, our current priority is just continuing to preserve balance sheet strength until we see how this evolves. Our next debt maturity, I think, as you know, is we've got those 500 million of senior notes due in September of next year. It's still our intention to uh, repay this debt on maturity. So we're we're very balance sheet mindful uh, right now. One of the frictions, I guess, that's developed in the gold business that people weren't thinking about was the movement of gold itself. And obviously some of the refinery closures that we've seen in Europe. Uh, I know you talked about this in the press release this morning, but what do you think the ongoing impact in terms of actually getting your dory refined will or won't be um, as this drags on? So we do use a number of different refineries around the world. So we we were impacted by one of the closures in uh, in Switzerland, which is a refinery that we would typically use. But, you know, in that instance, we were able to divert that shipment to a different location. Um, and, you know, we have contingency plans and alternate arrangements in place so that we can mitigate any potential impact of either refinery suspensions or transportation suspensions uh, around the world. You know, also note that I think there were some uh, curtailments or, or closures of, of smelters in Asia and other locations. That doesn't impact us because we're, we're only producing doré and, and not concentrate. Uh, in terms of some of the tailwinds, again, you touched on that in the press release this morning from the oil price and weak currencies. Is, is that enough to offset some of the paper cuts that... Uh, Paul Tamori was talking about earlier on? If, if we look at sort of spot levels um, and compare that to, to our initial cost input assumptions, certainly, you know, $20 oil is, is a lot lower than the $65 
oil that we budgeted and the Brazilian real and Russian ruble are, are both weaker. So we would expect to see a positive impact on our costs and on our on our ASIC from those impacts. And that might be something like $40 an ounce for ASIC for the year. But, you know, as you know, the significant drop in oil prices really just happened in March. So we certainly won't see a full quarter impact of that uh, with our Q1 results. And, you know, as you said, there there could be other unfavorable factors as, as the year unfolds. So, you know, in terms of incremental costs in dealing with virus protocols and, and other impacts, these, you know, may occur, but the more significant issue for us could be spreading our production costs over fewer ounces. And, and I think we commented on that um, in our news release and, and Paul made some comments on that earlier. So, as an example, you know, we expect our Q1 costs to, to be within the guidance range that we set at the start of the year, but towards the higher end of, of, uh, of that range because the costs are being spread over fewer number of ounces, as, uh, as Paul noted. Greg, I'll, I'll jump in with yeah. a bracket of potential impact. In a normal year where crude runs between 50 and $60 a barrel, Kinross's run rate spend on diesel and heavy fuel oil is between 350 and 450 million. So that's that 50 to 60 dollar crude. In most of the jurisdictions we operate, we have direct exposure to spot prices. In some places, it is controlled by the government. So notwithstanding some of the hedges we have in place, you can just do the quick math on that. The call it 350 to 400 million, where that goes to when crude is at half or less than half of what it used to be. Sure. I know mining's been declared an essential service in Nevada and Alaska. What are the social distancing protocols that you have to um, abide by? In, in, in those jurisdictions. Paul, that's, when do you take that? Uh, Greg, Paul talked about some of the comprehensive measures we've put in place at Coupol, and the same is true at all of our sites, including the, the U.S. assets. First and foremost, we comply with all local health authority protocols and guidelines that are put in place by the, the local authorities. But in addition to that, we have rigorous social distancing and day-to-day protocols. So, for example, a truck driver, it's easy to maintain social distance. They're alone in their cab. But in other areas, meetings, uh, line-up meetings, safety briefings, we've had to space those out, do them by radio, do them by phone. Other areas where we've implemented social distancing measures is in the transport of people. Crew buses, crew vans, we've had to add those because we, ha- we, can, we have to have much fewer people per per trip. We've moved queue points, we've staggered shift times, uh, essentially to create a lot more space in both time and distance between people. In addition to that, where people can do their jobs remotely, for example, tech services or finance, those people are working from home at the site level. We've seen a lot of innovation here in this area as well. Um, Fort Knox, for example, has a, a long list of social distancing measures, and these get reviewed every week, and they get developed on. So this is an area where we're really seeing some good continuous improvement and innovation at the at the site level. So it's not a business as usual environment, but we're really proud of how our, our leadership teams at the sites are, are reacting. And it sounds like the regulators and government agencies that you're dealing with are, are actually being very cooperative and very helpful, and in general, it's going quite well on that front. Absolutely. Per my opening remarks, uh, this is a really great example of how we can work together. Jeff, maybe you want to chime in here and talk a little bit about our government relations uh, around the world. Sure, Paul. Uh, thanks. Yeah, look, uh, as, as Paul just alluded to and earlier in the call, I would just say, you know, bottom line and in summary, the overall response from our host governments to date has been helpful 
and in the spirit of, uh, of mutual uh, partnership. We've been in regular uh, contact with the key government agencies in all of our operating jurisdictions, and you heard the words from Paul again. The authorities have been cooperative and supportive uh, of keeping operations going, while at the same time ensuring appropriate measures are taken to protect the health of our workforce and the wider communities. Um, as you would have seen in our uh, in our press release, uh, Greg, and as Paul also noted earlier in the call, our host governments in Nevada, Alaska, and Brazil have declared mining essential. Our host governments in other jurisdictions, such as Mauritania and Russia, have been supportive, and we are working closely with them to continue to operate our mines in a safe uh, manner. So, again, in conclusion, and despite the crisis, our host governments have to date struck a reasonable balance between prioritizing the safety of their people and facilitating the safe conduct uh, of our business. So, Paul, I think I've run through the list of questions that I had. I just thought I'd turn it back over to you to for some wrap-up comments, and we can end it there. Sure. Thank you, Greg. Um, look, I, I just I would say in summary again, I'd just like to reiterate how proud that I am of all of our employees who've risen to this occasion and their you know their efforts to make sure we remain compliant uh, while st- while still running our business, and so. I thank you for, again, TD, for hosting us, and um, certainly to any investors that are dialing in, we're obviously available for uh, follow-up questions. Thank you for listening once again to this latest episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. It's great to have you here. Feel free to share this with your friends. Uh, geology, financial, otherwise. If you have a student that's into mining, feel free to send them this podcast. We have a lot of students. Shout out to the young mining professionals out there. With that, we have some very exciting episodes coming up. We're going to interview some staff members of the Northern Miner, get their perspective. Also from Canadian Mining Journal, we have Alicia Hyatt, Trish Saywell, Carl A. Williams, and more. So all that is coming up. Until next week, take care.